Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 110. Hope you all had a great New Year's Eve. Welcome to a new year, a new decade. And if you're listening on the day that this episode posts, January 3rd, 2020, today is the second anniversary, second birthday, whatever you want to call it. But the podcast, the Back of the Range Golf Podcast, is two years old. So for those of you that have been here since the beginning, or if you're just recently learning about the back of the range, thank you for all of your support. Let's keep things rolling into 2020. I am not going to waste any time with announcements to start this episode, other than to say that if you have not listened to the first part of my conversation with Brad Tilly, go do that first before listening to this episode. So go back, listen to episode 109. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere. If you need any help, just go to thebackoftherange.com. So let's get it started. Part two of my conversation with Brad Tilly. So joining us again, um, long time no here, but uh, welcome back to the Back of the Range, Brad. Uh, Let's finish up uh, where we left off. Thanks for joining us today. Yep. Thanks for having me on and I look forward to continuing the chat. Of course. Well, you know, I did this, I did everyone kind of dirty in the last episode where I kind of teased this massive story you had about Tiger Woods because you were a member at Medalist when you were a professional. And obviously that's a a place that Tiger um, works on his game and and prepares for championships there. So I feel like I'm kind of on thin ice with the listeners here at the podcast. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Tiger Woods. Uh, I, I assume I'm, I'm assuming no one's going to have an objection to that, uh, let alone you. But maybe just explain to listeners, when you're walking into Medalist and you get your bag and you get all settled and you head over to the range to work on your game and you look down and there's Tiger Woods doing the same thing as you are, what was it like the first time you saw that happen? So, yeah, the first time you see Tiger uh... – in a different setting right it is pretty cool um usually you're on the outside of the ropes and he's on the inside of the ropes or you're staring at a tv and that's the world of tiger woods that you consume and uh to be part of the different side of that is uh one the lucky few um right place right time uh to be at medalist for as long as i was and then he chose that spot so uh very lucky but it, it became more than that, which was amazing. Um, he was kind of reworking his body and golf game back into the shape uh, around that time. Uh, I think it was, he joined there in around 2012, if I had to guess. And uh, okay. we all know what he did in 2013, but getting to the range um, or even before you got there, because everyone knows Tiger and it's no lie. He gets there before everyone else. And uh you pull in and you think you're going to be the first one there and there'd be a nice car in the parking lot. And you knew, you knew who was there. Yeah. Um, and there was a different buzz around the property. Um, even though it was his home and it was a great home for him and it still is a great home where no one pressures him. No one makes it awkward. They don't treat him like a celebrity. He's just another member, but um, you know, who was there. They, there's a little buzz on the property and then obviously getting out to the range and 
even if you're on the other end of the range, watching him hit towards you or if you're on the same end of the range, uh, but not right next to him. It's a pretty cool thing to be a part of. It's a different kind of practice session for sure. Uh, Really cool stuff. Now, when you, I mean, obviously you're there, you're a professional, you're trying to get your work done too. So you're both in the office, but at some point um, there's got to be a little bit of, you know, talk around the water cooler, so to speak. Do you go up to him or does he just go up to you or like you're both professionals working on, on improving your craft, but still where, when do you get comfortable saying, Hey, how's it going? I think that was aided by the comfort you have at metalist in general. Okay. Um, it, people are very comfortable around each other and you don't need to feel nervous there. Um, and as I said on the last episode, I mean, I've already met and played with a bunch of Ryder Cuppers there. That doesn't take away from the experience of meeting or talking to Tiger Woods. Of course, that's still a big deal. But I think the culture and atmosphere medalist provides, it kind of takes a little bit of that edge off. But he was also really good. I mean, I know people have talked a lot about how he is when he come came back, right? Um, he had to take time off for the injury and, and everything that happened. And he came back and he was really friendly. He was happy to come up to the members. And fortunately he was able to, he came up to me and I was able to get to know him decently well to the point where he always said hi to me. Uh, we always had a chat um, when it was possible. And uh, I wasn't afraid to go up to him and practice alongside him even. So um, we had quite a few times where we spoke, where we were on the putting green talking about things or on the range practicing side by side. And, uh, it even got crazier than that. Um, yeah, I mean, my buddy came down, he works in, uh, New York city, uh, in finance, my buddy, Chris Venosian, member be hollow. And, uh, we had a trip every year where he would come down get out of the cold weather and play golf. And he comes down and he's, I wonder if we'll see tiger out at medalist because it was pretty well known at that time. Tiger was a member out there and uh, I said, yeah, I seen him quite a bit recently. So, um, chances are pretty good. So we go out and the first day we get there, we weren't going to play cause he wants to shake the rust off. And I think it was the afternoon and, uh, we see Tiger alone on the range. So I go up and said, let's go say hi. I mean, how do you not take advantage of that? Of course right? you have to. So we go up and we say hi and Tiger's in a great mood as he had been all year. And he and I got to know each other from practicing together a little bit. And uh, all of a sudden, there really wasn't anyone at the club. So he was a little bit maybe more comfortable or more open. And um, we started, he asked what I was working on. So I hit a, he wanted to see me hit a couple of balls. So now I've got Tiger watching me hit balls, putting me in the spot. And my buddy Chris kind of just sitting five, 10 feet behind, just wondering. How is this even happening? Thank, thank and, God, thank God, I didn't want Chris to hit some balls for him. I mean, <laughs> it's not a good way to shake the rust. That would have been, I mean, sure. that's, that would have been that would have been a better story. Not that yours isn't good, but that would have been even crazier. Yeah, I just think you know the fact that this happened, and he spent at least half an hour from me. I don't know, Chris might say it's an hour, but it wasn't a short amount of time. And you know, he's grabbing the club and putting in positions, talking about feels, and working with me on what I had been working on and giving me his two cents. And that is just, yeah. What is surprised yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. What is Tiger's hourly lesson rate? I didn't know he, it's probably not posted anywhere, but uh, that's, that's great. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't bill me. <laughs> so, 
So he's working with you now, but you've had opportunities to play with him as well. Yeah, I've played played a few times with him. I mean, not full 18 holes every time, but um, we had a pretty cool uh, match uh, one time. Tiger is was feeling pretty good. I think this was 2013. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was in May 2013, and he was in the midst of that run when he was going to become number one in the world again and went five times that year, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And um, this goes back to his relationship with Hugo Leon, my buddy. And we get out there and Hugo goes, hey, we're playing with Tiger today. So (laughs) fantastic. This is this is going to be great. So we get to the first tee and Tiger is about to go to Memorial that week. And I'm pretty sure he won that Memorial and uh, have to look it up, but I'm pretty sure he did. He's feeling great, obviously. So we get to the first tee and he goes, I'm going to play you two guys best ball. <laughs> we were like, all right, sure. Okay. <laughs> Let's do that. And you know, Hugo's playing great. I'm playing pretty well at the time. And we go out there and we have a, we have a good match. And Tiger was playing with us a little bit in the sense that I don't think he really cared about the match. Uh, I don't know if he was trying to inflate our egos, letting us play best ball, but he was out there working on shots. He wasn't even trying to beat us up. I I mean, not that he tried to, to lose the match, but um, it was so cool to see him out there hitting drivers on holes that aren't driver holes, trying to work it into spaces and all the things you heard about him hitting shots at a different site to get ready for the next venue or for two venues ahead. Um, so he's like basically, so he's looking down fairways and instead of seeing, you know, the eighth hole at medalist, he's seeing in his, in his mind's eye, he's seeing the 14th hole at, at uh, Muirfield village is what you're saying. Exactly. And he, 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 it was insane. I mean, he's hitting these shots and they don't fit the hole. They're going into areas that you don't hit it. Like 10 at medalist, for example, is a three iron pitching wedge part four huge fairway if you hit three iron if you hit anything more it gets really narrow with bushes and hazard and he hits driver and carves it into this like tiny area (laughs) and you knew he was working on a shot for something else well and and getting back to what we talked about on the on the first episode or the first part of our conversation you mentioned having this match against michael jordan who is all about he does not want to lose he doesn't want to he just does it's not about the money he just does not want to lose he's so competitive and he's heckling you sounds to me that tiger this is a work day like taking a couple bucks or saying he beat you and hugo no offense is not what he needs to get ready for memorial so it's kind of interesting to hear kind of what it's very interesting to hear michael jordan's approach and tiger woods approach since they've both been really tied uh, you know very very tied over the last uh, you know several decades incredible um very different scenario for both of them you know right. one guy getting ready for whatever tournament he's got coming up and another guy who's uh his basketball career is over and he's a competitive guy that wants to beat you at all costs so yeah. um you know at the end of the day i learned a ton from tiger it was fun to be on the course from for a long time with him and uh i did in fact whole uh about a 40-yard bunker shot on the final hole for Eagle. Um, they've now converted the 18th to a par four, but it was a par five back then. And uh, he wasn't too thrilled with that because there was a press on that hole. Oh, no. <laughs> and he gave me that little bit of a dirty look, and he gave me some nice words uh, 
for my ears to chew on. Nice. <laughs> I won't repeat them right here. No, that's okay. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm sure he just said, oh, shucks, and you rascal. So um, Yeah. Yeah, he said, dang it, or something said, like that. Probably. That sounds like Tiger. Um, <laughs> so uh, I guess one question I have for you is these are all great stories that probably, you know, they're probably anyone that has had experience being a member at Medalist or, or playing golf with Tiger being when he's working on his game. The, they could share similar stories, you know, maybe not the whole bunker shop, but similar stories. I guess one thing that I'm always fascinated in is hearing stories about human moments from any of these guys on tour or just just about anyone in the game of golf uh you know sure we have ideas of tiger or phil or nicholas or hogan spending eight hours in the range and and being very competitive or very locked in in what they're trying to do but i'm always fascinated by just the the human moments where they're just an ordinary guy just like the rest of us um I'm sure you would have just. I'm sure you've seen something like that that would be like, "Yep, Tiger's just a regular guy." Well, uh, let me uh, hit on one more non-human moment that oh, okay. made me realize something about Tiger. First, I, I forgot to mention it, um, among other things. But I remember one day we were working together on the range, and he has that blade two iron in the bag, which he is no longer playing anymore. He always plays the five wood or driving iron, but he's got the blade two iron in there. So I pick it up and I say, Hey T what, what's this for? And I thought, oh, I like to practice with it sometimes, blah, blah, blah. Would like, you mind hitting it for me? Uh, I just want to see it. And uh, I mean, the shot that he produces with a blade two iron is not something maybe Rory, Rory can do it. I don't know. Um, he hits it straight up in the air super flush barely takes a divot so the so it launches high it stays up in the air forever has a trajectory like other someone's nine iron and flies about 260 yards and at that moment to see that greatness even though it's just a shot on the range i'm really seeing him do it in tournaments and whatever but to see him hit a shot on the range that i can't hit i couldn't hit the time i'll never be able to hit and pretty much everyone I've ever practiced with or played with or watched has no chance of hitting speaks to being around once in a lifetime talent. And for me to be able to experience that was incredible. Do you, do you think he understands what you're going through when you see something like that? Like his self, his, (laughs) his self-awareness. And I don't mean like him, like talking, talking shit and saying, Hey, look what I can do. And you can't. But do you think he has the self-awareness to realize, okay, I, I have the records, I have all the wins, but it's but I'm better. But I'm just I I there are people around me that are trying. There are people around me on the PGA Tour or here at the Range of Medalist. I'm doing something that they can't physically do. Do you think he is aware of that? He's completely aware of it, and okay. actually leads me into something else. And he wasn't doing it in braggadocious well that's no that's that's exactly what i mean i'm not talking about you know being in the bunker and hitting some spinner and and hitting three in a row in and saying hey look what i can do i mean just truly being conscious and aware of the fact that i have this ability that everyone in the world is working on and they're not they don't have it you know what ben i think it's worse than that i think i think that he knows people aren't working on it because he knows they can't do it. <laughs> I mean, okay. it, it's crazy. It's, I mean, no one can hit a two iron like that. 
I mean, I've heard stories of Jack Nicklaus. I never hit balls with him. So, I don't know. I heard he had a pretty good long iron game. But now he knows that the modern player, no one's hitting shots like that. And I don't know. If maybe you can't say no one ever will. But right. he knows He knows what level he's at. He's very astute and very aware. Um, he, I don't know. One time maybe he was sticking it to us. It was another day on the range when he was testing Nike Woods. So, probably the last... Maybe not the last batch. Do you remember the fire truck red Nike Woods that came out? Yes. Okay. So he's those were about to come out. We weren't we didn't even know they were gonna be fire truck red because his didn't have a finish on them. It was just a matte army green looking club, but had that I think it was I don't remember what it was called, but had that hollowed out bottom. Ended up turning into those red clubs and he's testing them and we're hitting balls with him that day. And there was a eh, group of pros there or whatever. So maybe he was kind of putting it to us a little bit. So he hits them and he doesn't miss a shot. Just pure, 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 pure. Five wood, three wood driver grabs. I don't know. He had a couple fairway woods, hits them and gets on the phone to whoever he calls at Nike. It obviously rings once. And then <laughs> there's an answer <laughs> that that phone call was not going to ring for very long. And he goes very casually, something, I, I don't have a direct quote, but something line is of, we need to work on the driver, the three wood's perfect, and the uh, five wood, you need to knock a quarter of a degree of loft off of it, and then it'll be good. And a quarter of a degree, I don't know if he was sticking it to us, I think he was obviously, he needed, he felt he needed that adjustment, Right. but um, I don't personally change my lofts by a quarter of a no, degree no and this, and, is, and this is obviously not uh, obviously these aren't adjustable heads this is glued in um right. yeah so this is so yeah he, they need to make a new club with a quarter degree less loft than the five what they had sent him and honestly he hadn't missed a shot so i don't know why he needed that but i guess he did he was so, <laughs> that good but we can talk about the uh him being a human which was obviously me equally as cool as the athlete and the incredible talent on the golf course he is. Um, you've mentioned uh, all these things and uh, superhuman things, but I, I, I mean, tell me, uh, tell me there's a time where Tiger's just one of the boys. Oh, for sure. And I think that, um, as I said, he was very good with everyone. He was great with me. We got to know each other. We t- worked on golf, but we also became I'm not going to say friends because I didn't hang out with him that much, but we were friendly and it was very sincere and it was nice to see that he is just a human too. And to develop a relationship with a very interesting guy who has a lot of passions and interests and kind of, I think he almost was wanting or seeking a little bit of that, human side of things sometimes where maybe it wasn't always going to be about golf or maybe between shots while we were playing, we could be buddies or something like buddies. And I just think he lives a very obviously isolated life given his superstar status. I mean, it's not like he runs out to go to the movies and it would, you know, he's not really able to do that with the fanfare around him. So I think those moments, I think he cherished them, but it was very cool to see that side of him. And uh, it was nice to have that relationship with him and have those chats with him. And they were pretty relaxed and he's a pretty cool California guy. Um, And really the one story that I always 
tell people that kind of woke me up or just was a very interesting experience for me was during one of the summers and it was probably the summer of 2012 and during the summer at Medalist, they do a lot of work to the course uh the staff is not in the clubhouse it's open for us so we can go use the facilities we can sit down at the tables but there's no food service there's no drink service right. uh, there's like one person in the shop uh the course is often closed uh the range is closed for the regular membership those days when i say regular membership i'm talking about the non-professional playing membership right. and it doesn't really need to be closed for them because most of those guys are you know up north doing their thing at their other club and uh all the pros are down there. You just get there. You grab your basket of balls that has your name on it in the down in the cart barn below the clubhouse, and you head out to the range and and you hit your balls. And somehow someone will come pick the range and sort the balls back out. And you can do that every day throughout the summer. So some of those days were the days that I spend the most valuable time with Tiger and with the other pros because there wasn't a hustle and bustle and there was only one thing you could do. You can walk in the clubhouse and you can use facilities and you can walk out to the putting green range and use those. That's it. So you're almost forced into the same space. And, uh, one day we're there with tiger and there's just a few of us. I think Hugo was there and we were hitting balls in the morning and it's typical Florida morning. We're all covered in sweat and we need to get lunch. We're going to go back and practice in the afternoon. And Tiger decides he's going to join us for lunch, uh, which is interesting. Um, he usually kind of has a busy schedule and does his own thing. And yeah. you get some time with him when he's at the course. And then he just in the car and he's gone. And you wonder when you're going to see him next. So on this particular day, we jump into our cars I didn't ride with him. He didn't ride with us, but so we took separate cars and we ended up going to the Hope Sound Deli, which I didn't even know existed before that day. And it's this, yeah, whatever, normal deli, very small on the side of uh, US1 or A1A, whatever the road is there. And uh, it's kind of surrounded by weird stuff. You can auto shop, you got whatever. There's really nothing there. Right. So we, we all park, we walk in. And the moment I walked through that door and grabbed my soda out of the cooler and I just looked next to me and Tiger's there. Tiger Woods is in Hope Sound Deli with me being very relaxed, looking, what should I, looking at a cooler, what should I drink? Like any other guy would walk into a deli or your other buddies walk into the deli and decide what do they want to drink? And then you walk up and you order a sandwich. So now I'm here with him in a deli that I've never heard of, kind of a hole in the wall. Actually, had good food. Uh, I don't know if it tasted better because I was eating it with Tiger or yeah, not. Very good. But, <laughs> so, yeah, we're just sitting there selecting drinks and sandwiches, and we grab them, and we head back to the clubhouse, and we sit down in the, in the men's locker room. There's a grill area, and we open up our sandwiches and, and eat them and talk like, I would with Hugo or any of our other buddies at that time and doing that with tiger and seeing him be that human and having the experience of being in that deli with him, uh, was just weird. I mean, it'd be weird to see him at a restaurant, let alone be with him at one. And, uh, the people that worked there were, they were really good about it. They, they knew who he was obviously, but 
they didn't mention anything. They treat him like any other guy. And I think he really appreciated that. And uh, so that to me, it's not a huge, crazy story, but just experiencing that and seeing that was kind of an eye opener for me. And one of the cooler moments I had with Tiger, actually. No, that's a, that's a great story. Cause I think everyone kind of would like to be in that situation and see what that experience is like. And okay, we're away from all the hustle and bustle and the, and the lights and the camera and, yeah, just a guy getting a sandwich because his because uh, his country because his uh, yeah he's just a guy getting a sandwich because his club uh, doesn't have the kitchen staff home uh, around that day. So, yeah, you, that's that's kind of what you got to do. Um, yeah, wow, that's Amazing. awesome. Well, I know we can fill up tons more, but let's actually. Um, I want to ask you. So you're you're obviously a, a reinstated amateur, and at this time, and and you know, golf is just kind of that. Um, you know, it's different than other sports, you know, a professional athlete, you know, when they decide to end their career, it's not only because of age or, um, you know, skills are diminishing, but you know, golf, it's a little different. You know, the skills may not necessarily diminish. It just, they may not get to a level where it gets you to the PGA tour. So it's sometimes it's running out of money. I guess that's, that's a very uh, typical, uh, you know, reason for it, but I'm just curious, what was, kind of your writing on the wall moment or when did you realize, Hey, I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm just wondering if you can talk through the, um, the transition from playing professionally to eventually getting your amateur status back and competing on the national stage. That was a hard decision. And it actually took a lot of talking with my dad, um, who was helping me out. And, um, it didn't necessarily come down to dollars and cents, but it came down to, what's your life plan? And what made it extra hard for me was I could have kept playing and I'd been working my butt off at the time and my results weren't matching up with the hard work I was putting in. And that was very frustrating, very stressful. And I kind of made a deal with myself that um, age 30 was going to be a number where I was going to take a serious reevaluation and figure out what I wanted out of life and what my decision was going to be. Because in my mind, um, I didn't stop playing because I didn't feel I was not going to make it or my skills weren't improving. And I, I, I still to this day would think, I think I'm better now today than I was then. And I don't practice very much. So I can only imagine, I mean, and I don't think that's why um, I can speak, to the mental things that have been able to help me improve my mental game on the course um, as far as growing up, getting a job, doing something else for a while. Uh, you have time to reflect, and I think that's made me better. But I, I do – the point I'm trying to make is I think I could have made it. I don't know if I would have made it. I don't know how long it would have taken, if it ever would have happened. Would it have lasted for one year? Would it have lasted for 10? And the point was, when I was evaluating me getting into my 30s, you start to get to a point where you're using someone else's money, whether it's family money, friends' money, uh, private sponsors, not private sponsors. You're using someone else's money to pay for your life, and you're going down a, not a dark path, but a potentially lonely path that you could end up being at age 40 and not have made it and then make a decision that 
you need to know what to do. And I felt that at a, around age 30, I was a lot more, or I had more time and I was still not that old that if I wanted to start a career or I was able to start a career and fail at that maybe for two or three years and do something else. And I think once you get to 40, I thought it was going to be harder for me to do that. So it was more of a benchmark and a milestone. And the fact that if I, at age 30, I had at that time was web.com, which is now corn Ferry. If I had that status at that time, I was going to keep going. And I didn't get through Q school that year. And it was hard for me to, to stop playing because I, I did believe I still had a lot in me. And um, it took me a while to get over that to the point where I didn't really want to play golf. I didn't want to be around golf unless I was doing it 100%. Sure. For me, 100% was to become the best I could be and to play at the highest professional level possible. And I wanted all of it or none of it. So totally understand. I, yeah, I mean, I think I only played I played less than 10 rounds in 2014. People would ask me to play, and I said, I don't want to do it. Not interested in it. Don't <laughs> like it. <laughs> like, you know, whatever. And I, I still always loved the game. It wasn't that I lost the love for the game. It's just I wasn't able to be part of the game the way I wanted to be a part. It wasn't on my terms anymore. So uh, the decision to stop playing was solely on a benchmark. And the fact that the last couple of years, my results just weren't matching up to uh, – where I wanted to be and what I thought I was going to be. And it was just, it was a hard decision and an easy decision at the same time. Uh, results weren't proving that I was going to get where I wanted to be quickly. I had a lot more hard work to do and I didn't want to go into my mid or late thirties and then fail at that point. And, uh, it was hard for me to play golf at all for that. And I essentially took three years off. So such my last a, full year. Yeah. It's such a crazy, not to cut you off, but it's such a, it's such a crazy game because if you're trying to make it in football or basketball or, or baseball or something where I guess you can always improve your physical skills, um, it doesn't seem like that, you know, practicing harder may or may not help you in the long run because everyone gets it done a different way. There's guys that, have limited time on the range, play limited, and they they can do it. Then there's guys that live at the course, and they're able to accomplish as well. I mean, there's no exact blueprint. So you so you get so you take your three years of just kind of getting away from the game. Um, when did you start and get the itch? Do you remember what brought you back to it? Yeah, um, it was it was simple. Um, the Hope Sound Deli. Living... No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> <I'm> not... <laughs> I never ate there again. You really can't ever go back there, can you? I mean, like, I, I mean, that's gonna be such a letdown if you ever go back there again. I'm not going back there. No chance. Okay. <laughs> no chance. Can't do that. You're right. Uh, no, but easy for me when I decided I was never gonna get it back living in Florida, and I was gonna continue doing what I was doing. I played a men's hockey league for three years, um, which gave me. A lot of joy. Uh, hockey was my first passion. I got back into it and didn't care if I injured myself. I wasn't willing to do it as while well I was playing because I could get injured. And I did that for three years. And then I was moving back up north. And I didn't really want to find a new hockey league. I'd kind of done what I wanted to do with the hockey. My body was not getting any uh, more receptive to punishment. And... Uh, it's like, hey, well, I grew up in the New York area, and for me, with all the 
retrospect I had, um, looking back on the days of Northern golf and golf in the Northeast and the way they have tournaments and the way they run tournaments up here in the Metropolitan Golf Association, um, and the other golf associations in the area, the venues are incredible. I mean, you're treated better than any other tournament other than a PJ tour event. I mean, I never played a professional event that treated as me as well as I was treated at a Metropolitan Golf Association, one of their majors, which wow. is, you're talking about the Ike, the Met Amateur, and the Met Open are the three majors. So, and, and that's not to say I wasn't treated well. As I said, in Canada, uh, in the last episode, you were treated almost as if you were on the PGA Tour. But, I mean, when I'm talking about world-class, you feel like you're playing a major championship in these Met events. So, when I decided to move back, it was just a no-brainer. I said, I need to do that. I can be competitive. Um, I need to find my game again because I don't know if I have one anymore. But I can be competitive. I can play great golf courses. And there's so many great people. So, now you're talking about friendships networking uh, and you can just name it from there uh so sure. it's just an easy decision when i moved up to do it how did you transition as far as getting your game back and not i mean realizing that you have a certain amount of time that you can devote to your game uh it's much different when you're pro- when you're professional versus when you're an amateur i think that's one of the things that when people listen to this podcast i always try and bring out okay how do you prepare your game for um, you know, a, a New York state mid amateur, a, a U.S. mid amateur, a USM qualifier, anything you're playing in. How do you make that transition from what you used to do to, okay, now I have a finite amount of time. Uh, I play a lot of hockey. No, you, uh, it's not going to do it. No, it's not a joke actually, in a way okay. um, for me, when the years I played hockey and getting into the mindset of being part of a team and a hockey team, um, it's all obviously a lot different than golf. You could give up two goals at the beginning of the game and come back and win. If you had the first two balls OB, your round's pretty much shattered. So a uh, different game. But the mindset I think that hockey players have compared to uh, golfers is a lot different. I mean, you can, you can fall, you could trip, you can get hit in the face with a stick, and you can have a terrible shift. And the next shift out, you're going to go – and you're going to work hard and you just put your head down. You don't complain. Whereas, uh, I was guilty of it. And most golfers are, is you get in, sometimes you get into this negative complainy spot on the course. So for me, playing hockey gave me a different mindset and approach to the game. And I think it's a huge, huge benefit to me now. Um, and I, and then for some reason, um, right before I came back up, I decided to play a little more golf as I, oh, I'm going to get my amateur status back. I got it back. That fall, I started playing golf again down in Florida. So that's fall of 2016. And I'm not playing tournaments, but I would go out once a week uh, to medalist and play. And I was back with my buddies and I cared about practicing or playing a little bit. And I was really rusty. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I would go out, I would whether I felt I played well or poorly, I would shoot 78. And I'm like, well, what happened? <laughs> well, I guess you take three years off. You, yeah. And you're playing a tough course like medalist. That's going to happen. But then it started building on itself. And Hugo and I played the member member in December at medalist. And we didn't win, which is terrible. We finished second. But we just kind of had the first 27 holes of this 36-hole event. We had this where we both would pull, make a bogey in the same hole. We both birdied the same hole and we just lift a bunch of putts out yeah. and um, didn't let it get to us. And then 
I went out on the back nine there and something clicked where I lipped out for birdie on 10 and then I birdied seven of the last eight holes. Uh, I was actually seven straight. So I birdied 11 through 17 and then part 18 with uh, just missed a putt, which I thought was to get us in the playoff. I think we would have missed by two. Um, we missed by two in the end, I think anyway, in the playoff finished second, but I shot 29 on my own ball with seven birdies at medalist. Um, and that was actually my last round of medalist, uh, until I went back down last year. And, uh, that just kind of showed me it, the game's not gone. Um, and obviously then I had to move up and it was snowing up here and, uh, I didn't play much. And then my first tournament back was U S open local in Connecticut here. And I was a wreck. Um, coming off not practicing because it's been cold weather and snow and all that. I've been trying to move in and I think I putted really well and shot 77 missed by mile. Um, but that gave me motivation. You know, I didn't get upset about it. Just gave me something to work on. And I slowly built that year, uh, with my new attitude and just kind of got better each event that year and ended up, I was, I, qual- I won the qualifier for the U.S. Mid-Am and was medalist during the stroke play at the Mid-Am that year in Atlanta and uh, lost in the quarterfinals finals to uh, Matt Parziali. I, had f- I was five up through ten. He went nuts on me, and he beat me in extra holes. So oh, wow. I relived that once in a while because I was rolling that week. But um, I'm glad he went on to win. It was uh, at least – that made it a little bit easier to swallow. Of course. But, uh, no, but I just think – I've always been a field player too. I'm not overly technical. And I think that helped me in the terms of, you know, I've got all this experience from playing professionally in all these events, but also I don't need to practice a ton for my game to show up as it would because of the fact that I am a field player. And I've always kind of relied on my imagination and my short game a lot. So for me, if I hit an errant shot, I mean, I'm kind of used to that. So it doesn't really stress me out and obviously i need to work on hitting less errant shots but um i think that helps when you don't practice every day sure. uh when you only play once a week so i just think the nature of my game helps a little in that and obviously i can use what i think is having a better attitude now which some time away from the game and playing hockey helped me with and then i can also i can always go back to all these moments as a junior golfer as a college golfer at virginia or as a pro or I had a match against Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods and all these moments are something I can bank on. So there's not really a situation where I feel like I'm going to get uncomfortable. And I'm not to say that I don't get nervous. I'm nervous. Like everyone else is. If I get to the first tee, I'm nervous to hit the first tee shot. If I've got a putt to win a hole or have a hole, you're always nervous. But, um, at university of Virginia, we had Bob Rotella, for example, and I worked with him and he said, being nervous just means you care. And once you acknowledge that, you can move on and then just take care of the business that you have in front of you, whether that's a six foot putt or a tee shot or whatever it might be, just acknowledge your nervous and move on. And so I can use all these things as a bank of knowledge and experience to help me be as successful as possible on the course uh, as a mid amateur. Nice. Um, Let's talk about, I, I mean, like you just said, numerous successes at the national level, um, whether it's U.S. Mid-Am, whether it's uh, local qualifiers, um, things in the state, things in the Met, 
but I really want to talk about this fall where you did something that I don't think has ever been done. You you won three mid-ambitor championships. I think you're the only one that holds the New York State and the Westchester and the MGA mid-ambitor titles in the same year. Um, actually, no one's ever done that. No one's actually only one other person or two other people have won two out of the three. Uh, the thing that's so crazy about this is these three tournaments were in the span of 10 days. So while that's kind of sinking in for people, where when you're looking at the schedule and you're signing up for this, obviously you're aware of how close they are. But what are your initial thoughts thinking, okay, I just signed up for three different tournaments in 10 days? Yeah, uh, the schedule is kind of tough as we're in the Northeast, right? So your tournaments are from local qualifying for U.S. Open in May 7th or something until the end of October. So now you've got a five, six-month condensed schedule, and there's a lot of opportunities up here to the point where we're very lucky to have what we have um, between invitationals and then the golf association. So I live in Connecticut. I'm eligible for Connecticut State Golf Association, which runs a bunch of great tournaments. I'm a member of uh, Sleepy Hollow, which is – Metropolitan Golf Association, MGA, and New York State Golf Association, uh, NYSGA, um, all, they all run great tournaments. And there's no possible way to play them all and then add invitationals and add maybe a couple invites for national uh, tournaments or qualifications for USGA. You just can't play that much, and yeah. they overlap. So uh, this was kind of a weird year for me where things fell. Um, always wanted to play New York state golf association stuff. Um, I actually had never played any of their tournaments and it's not for any other reason than scheduling conflicts and, or distance to a venue or a qualifier. And I saw that I was exempt for the New York state mid amp. So I threw that on the schedule because there was nothing really competing with it. It just fit nicely. And, uh, I could go and stay with my buddy in central New York, who's the Colgate and uh, golf coach. He's one of my best friends, uh, Keith Tybersky, which was about 45 minutes from Tuscarora, which hosted the event. So that was on the schedule. Um, and then also the Metropolitan Golf Association runs a point system for player of the year. And your exemptions into their events are based on that. And then you need to kind of be in the top 10 to get into the events for the following year. And I had a rough start to the season in the sense that I just didn't accumulate a lot of points. Not that I played poorly, but I didn't always play well at the right time. And my finishes were maybe 10th instead of fifth and fourth, which give you, there's a huge point difference there. So I looked to add um, events to my schedule in the fall. So I, I signed up for a very robust fall schedule. Um, and at this point, you know, you have to sign up pretty early. So I didn't know what was going to happen. So I signed up for New York State Mid-Am, Westchester Mid-Am, and uh, Metropolitan Mid-Am, which I always play um, anyway, because right. the venue is incredible and there's a lot of exemptions if you win. And I also signed up for NASA Invitational and Gene Sarah's an Invitational. And I knew that the Carry Cup was sandwiched in between those two, which I wasn't really... I was in the conversation, but I wasn't really on the team because I hadn't accumulated a ton of points. And it was something I always want to play in those international matches. So, And speak uh, to what the Carry Cup actually is. 
Yeah, so it's the USA versus the Ireland. So you got the golfing union of Ireland, which is the whole country, and then the USA is represented by a team that is from the Metropolitan Golf Association. So it's not really pooled from the entire United States, but you're representing the U.S. Um, and the MGA. Um, so it's really just a Ryder Cup style match, six six amateurs on each team uh, competing for points as you would in Ryder Cup. So you've got one day of uh, team play where you play uh, alternate shot and uh, best ball. And then the, that's uh, six points. And then the final six points are singles matches on the second day. So it's very much like a condensed Ryder Cup against Ireland. Nice. So, yeah, I signed up for all those events and uh, got a little momentum at the Met Amateur, started to play well, accumulated some points there. And then I had this huge gap in my schedule, so I wasn't really concerned with the scheduling being so crazy in the fall. Um, Then I headed up to central New York to play the New York State uh, Golf Association Mid Amateur. And uh, it was a cool course, and it reminded me a lot of Canada uh, in the sense that it's a tiny uh, course with fast slopey greens and long rough. We have to really manage it well. And, uh, was fortunate enough to go up there and play really well. Um, set a scoring record one by seven shots. Um, shot 69, 66, 69, and, uh, to have all rounds in the sixties and do that was incredible. And then didn't play at all until my next event, which I think was, I don't know, four days later or something, or five days later, got back to work, did what I had to do, showed up in the rain and wind in the next tournament and won that one. That was the Westchester Golf Association. Then I had two days off, and I didn't play those two days, obviously, and uh, teed it up in the Metropolitan Golf Association uh, mid-amateur and uh, had a crazy win there. Uh, I was kind of behind, ended up taking lead and had a somewhat commanding lead with two holes to go and got stuck in the left trees actually ended up making up and down from 88 yards for triple on the second to last hole oh, lost God. my lead yeah lost my lead and this is where it really gets interesting um i pull my tee shot at 18th hole weeburn ob left bunkers and ob left and water right very demanding tee shot i pulled a little trying to hammer it so i can get a chance to reach the green in two I pull it, hit the back end of the bunker, and I think I'm fine. I get up there, I'm a foot OB. So I've just made triple, and my ball's a foot out of bounds. And I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be a monumental meltdown for the guy trying to win three tournaments in a row. How's that thought not come into your head? Of course. And so I start walking back towards the tee. One of the officials sees this, picks me up in the cart, drives me back. I pipe my next tee ball, uh, probably out of a little bit of anger. And, uh, then I hit five wood up on the green on this long par five. So that's pretty cool. And uh, I'm walking up and a few people out there and my dad's watching me and he goes, if you make that putt for a second ball eagle and a par, um, you'll be solo second. And at this point, I feel like I'm not going to win the tournament. And so I've got this 55 foot putt up over a ridge. And I guess by the time I had got up there and read the putt, the guy in the group behind me, had run into the same kind of trouble I did and had already hit a couple shots and one OB and I didn't know this. I think I've got this putt, which I'm trying to make for finish second. And I, I somehow make this long 50, 55 foot putt over a ridge and people go nuts. I'm thinking, well, that's nice of them to 
be supportive of me. And turns out the guy in the group behind me had so much trouble, he ended up uh, making an eight, and and I ended up winning the tournament by a shot over a couple of people. And uh, so obviously was very lucky um, in the sense that it worked out and to make that pot. Uh, but yeah, three tournaments in very short span and three mid amateurs that I don't know if anyone has won all three. And I know that no one's won all three in the same year. And uh, to do it in the fashion that I did was um, unexpected, really special, something I'll never forget. Well, that's a nice fall. Um, I don't, I don't know what, what, what's your encore plan for 2020? What are you doing to prepare for 2020? Well, I mean, the fall wasn't over then. I mean, I finished second at NASA and I won Gene Therizan, but the highlight of the fall really came for me in the international matches, to tell you the truth. Um, yeah. So the carry cup, I mean, I kind of get more excited for the team international team play than I do the individual stuff. Um, I don't know why. It's just something you don't really get to do that much. So whenever you get that opportunity, I don't know, for me, it becomes more important. When it becomes more important, I feel like I step up even better and I play my best golf and I'm more into it and uh, just kind of am able to rise to the occasion in those. And we had to play a really good Irish team. They had three Walker Cuppers. I think their worst player was ranked like 250th in the world or something. Yeah, so it was James and Sugru, it was Purcell, and and uh, who's the third? Colin Rafferty. Yeah, Colin Rafferty, that's right. Yeah, so you got those three guys, and uh, they drummed us on the first day. We had to get four and a half out of six points to win on day two. And, wow. Um, it played into their hands. It was cold and rainy on the first day and they all played well. And they're a great team, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, I'm sitting in the locker room upset and we have this team meeting and, uh, I have zero points on day one of an event that I care about. And I know I step up for these and I played fine. I just couldn't pull out wins that day with my partner. And, um, I'm bummed out, you know, like didn't matter that I won the three tournaments. Nothing mattered other than we got to win this thing. And, now we have a huge, huge uh, deficit to come over. And it just turned right there. Um, we got this information. The MJ is great. They keep all this data. They said they always put their best players out first. So we know their three Walker Cuppers are going first, probably in the order that they're ranked in the world or whatever. And one of the guys on our team goes, well, who should we play? Whatever. Ideas are bouncing. And I just said to everyone, so I don't care who I play. I'm going to go out and do my best. If I play well, I think I'm going to win. So put me wherever you need me. I want to be part of this comeback. And one of the guys who's got some experiences, I think you should go out first. So they put me out first against Connor Purcell. And uh, my brother couldn't be there that day. So I promised him I birdie one for him. Um, Birdie the first hole, making a 20-foot putt. He had an 18-foot putt I missed. He misses. So great, whatever, one up. Then I birdie two. Then I birdie three, lip out on four, birdie five, birdie six, birdie seven, and birdie eight. So I birdied seven of the first eight holes. He's even par, and he's seven down through eight. So that was silly, but I knew it was weird. I just knew I had to keep pushing because he's such a good player. I think he was ranked 12th in the world that time. The next week he's ranked ninth in the world. He's now turned pro. He just played the Australian Open this week for his uh, debut pro event. And, uh, I just respected his game so much and his talent that I just knew if I didn't 
keep going and I gave him anything, he would just come back on me. So I just kept pushing and ended up birdieing the 11th hole. So I birdied eight of my first 11 to win eight and seven. And I also knew that that was going to kind of invigorate the guys when they saw the leaderboard. And it did. We won all three matches against the Ryder Cuppers. We won the first three points. And uh, Trevor Randolph, who's a member at Arcola, sank a 15-footer on the final hole and forced the guy to make an eight-footer. And if he had made that, it would have been a high in points that they would have retained. And he ended up missing. So we got the four and a half, and we won by half a point. So uh, honestly, that was the highlight of my year, um, totally. Uh, both because of the way I played in the singles, but just being part of a team and for us to actually come back and win and beat an Irish team that had the accolades that they had. So that was the highlight. I'm going to ride that momentum into 2020. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have put together a little indoor studio, which I'm in right now in my garage with a uh, mat and a net and a launch monitor, which was generously donated by a friend. Um, so I've got that to hit balls this winter. I've never done that. I've got a little uh, big moth putting greens in here and hit about 12-foot putts on um, and a little gym set up. So my goal is this, uh, this winter to actually hit balls inside and hit putts inside and uh, try to get my body into a little bit better shape. Um, so that's the winter plan. Uh, and I think it's going to pay off. I'm going to keep, keep thinking about all the good things that happened this fall, and I'm going to use that memory as uh, motivation and momentum going into 2020 and i'm going to hit balls for the first time uh in the winter since i was a pro living in florida um <laughs> well it sounds like you got it all kind of planned out um if you can replicate what you did this year and uh, 2020 is going to be great so well i i really appreciate just uh, i mean just all the fantastic stories uh in this episode and in the previous one this has been a great two-part episode and sounds like there's going to be no shortage of things to talk about in 2020. So uh, we'll have to catch up and do it again. It was awesome talking to you about all this stuff, and I really appreciate it. And there you have it. Special thanks to Brad Tilly for joining us for back-to-back episodes. He was the last one in 2019 and kicked things off for us here in 2020. Don't forget, every episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you again next week for another episode here at the back of the range.